this time I invite you to open your Bibles and just worry about opening to Matthew 28. Matthew 28 is the last chapter in the book of Matthew. There's only one verse from John 12, but we'll get to that a little bit later. As we open to Matthew 28, we're going to read the whole chapter today. And I want to invite you into something that um, the elders and deacons of the church did this past Monday. As we read all of Matthew 28, this whole chapter of the angels appearing to the women at the tomb, a little bit of a conspiracy going on, and then following Jesus' great commission. As you read, I want you to choose, just pay attention, for what do you think the three most important verses are? The three most important verses in all of Matthew 28. Now, this is an unfair exercise, and I recognize fully, and that maybe seems kind of mean for Easter. But I want you to imagine that if the copy of Matthew's gospel, if the original copy caught fire, and only three verses could have survived the fire, which three do you hope it would have been? And I'll also let you in on a secret. If you're like, I don't think I can narrow it down to three, neither could the consistory. Everybody cheated um, and chose more than three. So, but let's cherish each word. Let's pay attention knowing that each verse matters, that we need every single word and that we would actually be happy to have even more. But what we have is sufficient and perfect for us to know salvation through our Lord. So pay attention as we read this glorious account. What are the three most important verses? But before we turn our attention to God's word, let's pray. Jesus, you live. You live today, and so we ask that your life may be abundant within us. We ask that you move, that our hearts may reawaken and be alive at your word, that your word may be living and active, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that our minds may be made to be full of life as we encounter this account of your resurrection from the dead. Live within us, live around us, that we might remember and follow you in life. And all of this we ask that you do so in your holy name, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak life into us today, for we, your servants, listen with eager hearts. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Matthew 28, beginning at verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. 
Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the, with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, there is a lot that we can conquer and overcome. And if you look around this room, or friends, if you're online, if you look around at another human being, you can be amazed that we are fearfully and wonderfully made as God created us. And there is a lot that we can overcome. There are a lot of victories. There are a lot of obstacles that we can conquer. And, well, we love those stories, don't we? We love the underdog stories of the team that was never supposed to make it anywhere and makes it to the championship. We also enjoy the, the uneven odds where it looks like at halftime somebody's gonna lose by a landslide and the arrogance of their opponent, the underdogs inch their way up and clinch victory in the end. We love stories of, of rags to riches, of those who overcame poverty and hard circumstances and arrived at wealth. We love hearing about how hard it was and how good it is now. We love hearing stories about victories, about obstacles being conquered and overcome. We love stories of healing, when those who were in ill health found the right way forward and committed to a good plan and, and made their way to good health going from sickness to health, hearing about obstacles overcome, hearing about victories, those stories inspire us. Hearing about addictions that people have overcome, whether it's something that you would eat, drink, smoke, watch, or do, hearing about people who got clean and made it sober from their addictions for years on end, we celebrate in these stories because they stir within us hope because victories stir hope deep in our souls. Now, if you're a follower of God, you know that any victory that you have in life, whether great or small, any victory we have is worth giving glory to God for. That we would say, Jesus, thank you. 
God, thank you for leading me through my wilderness time and bringing me into a promised land. Thank you for the people you put in my life to make this happen or accomplish it. Thank you for the, the medications I found or the doctor or therapist or friend that I needed to get me through this hard time. We could give a lot of thanks to God for all of our victories. But we also know the world doesn't always work that way. And in fact, also, we're aware that plenty of people like to take credit for their victories. That we can say, I did this. I stuck to the plan. I overcame this. And it can be all about me, myself, and I. And if we have a lens of humility and wisdom, we could say, be careful. Be careful to take too much credit for your own victories without giving glory to God in them. We can accomplish a lot, though. And the wise give glory to God, the foolish give glory to themselves. But there is a type of victory that we celebrate on Easter Sunday that cannot be duplicated by any human being that all of the strength and wealth and ingenuity of humanity cannot overcome, and that is the victory over death. We can conquer a lot, but we cannot conquer death. We can come back from a lot. We can be down and out and make a great return, a great comeback, but we cannot come back from the grave. Yes, we can be resuscitated if we've only been dead for a short while, but we cannot be crucified, died, and buried and manage to rise again triumphant and victorious on the third day. The victory of life to death, overcoming the grave, that victory only belongs to God. We cannot duplicate it. We cannot accomplish it on our own. Resurrection is the territory that only Christ can do and therefore lead us into and through. This is the one thing, the one, the one obstacle that though we are human and mortal and capable of much, capable of much, we cannot overcome death. Romans 3.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. We cannot overcome death. We cannot conquer sin on our own. This and this alone is the territory of Christ. And so it follows that if we recognize that our victory that we have over the grave only comes through Christ's conquest of the grave, only comes through his victory, then how simply does it follow that every victory, great and small in our lives, we give glory to God? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central, primary, first and foremost, most important event in human history and for us to recognize in our own lives. It is the resurrection of Christ front and center, that should shape our thinking, our minds, our worldview, how we view our neighbor. This is viewed through the victory of Christ from the grave and to live again. That victory is the one that matters most. And every other victory that we have in our life, and we pray that there are many, many victories, many obstacles overcome, all of those belong to Jesus. Because his victory over the grave, his victory, is the one that is the archetype for every victory that we have. And so if we look first to Christ and his victories, then we look at ours and we celebrate. We celebrate discipline. We celebrate times that we've worked hard and overcome much. But we look to Jesus and we give glory to him for his victory and all of ours in our lives they follow suit. 
we look to Jesus as our victor. It's as if all of the smaller victories and greater victories in our life are like a flower that we can pick and at the end of our life or at the end of every day, we hold up all of the flowers, all of the victories as a bouquet and say to Jesus, these are for you because our victory, they all belong to you. And this is a triumphant text of victory. Victory over death and sin, victory over the grave. And there's nothing like it. And though we can follow Jesus into resurrection hope, we cannot resurrect ourselves. We don't have conquest over the grave on our own. And here in Matthew 28, we hear a lot. And I wonder if you did have to actually follow the rules and not cheat like your elders and deacons did. And I mean, full disclosure, I was with Phil Campice for this extra, we cheated too. I was like, oh, we got two verses and, uh, and then the other two were a tie because we couldn't quite narrow it down. But one verse that every single elder deacon pair had as we did this exercise of picking just three verses, the three most important, was verse six. He is not here. He is risen. This is the first proclamation of the gospel hope of resurrection from the dead. The first proclamation that the angel gives to the women who are at the tomb. And of course, remember that the women were not by themselves at the tomb. They were greeted by the angel who gave them these greetings. Verse 6 is incredibly important to us. Verse 5 and 10 also has that repeated phrase, do not be afraid. First from the angels and then from Jesus. Do not be afraid. And it's hard to take away anything from the Great Commission because we kind of want all of it. We want the assurance not only that all authority in heaven and on earth over life and death has been given to Jesus. We want to know that it is our commission to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them all the things that Jesus taught us. We don't have to pick just three. We have all of it. We want to know that assurance of Jesus beyond just do not be afraid. We also want and need that assurance that he gives us. I am with you always to the very end of the age. We need all of this. And how fortunate we are that we don't have to pick three verses, but we have the whole chapter. We have the whole book. We have all of the story from before, and we have all the chapters that come after, and we as the church today continue to live as people of the resurrection, as people who carry that hope forward. Because this is a one a one-time event that echoes throughout all of history. The Old Testament left seeds being planted on our way to the resurrection. And from here on out, we are resurrection people. It's a good thing and it's good news. And I remember when I was a kid, uh, going to all of the services, morning and evening church, mind you, and Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, I remember uh, having great concern as a young person um, that, that your sins were only forgiven on Good Friday. And so in my head, I was like, okay, so every sin that I commit, everything I do wrong for a whole year is just like heaping up over time. And thankfully on Good Friday, when my sins are crucified with Christ on the cross, I'm forgiven then. And somewhere in my mind, since there was only one day that you were forgiven, uh, that also meant that I was like, wait, so Easter though, and in my head, I kid you not, I thought 
if you die on any day other than Easter Sunday, you probably just have to wait to get to heaven until the next Easter. And so I started to think, man, like, like the best time to die would be like late March, like on any given year, because you don't want to have to wait too long. I couldn't even have spelled the word purgatory when I was thinking this, and that wasn't the doctrine I was going for. But in my head, your sins are forgiven on Good Friday, whew, and then on Easter Sunday, if you died, that's when you get to go to heaven. Like it was kind of like a bus stop where you'd wait. Friends, that is not the theology of the cross or of the resurrection that we have. So please, if you're going to remember one thing, don't remember that. Remember this, that from Christ's resurrection, each and every day of subsequent human history leading us to today and continuing on until Christ shall return and make all things new and wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no death or mourning or crying or pain. Each and every day since the resurrection, we are invited to be with Jesus, that we are people of the resurrection and that the full circle, the completion of those words, do not be afraid in verse five and verse 10 are given to us and they are brought to fulfillment in Christ, that each and every day we live as people with the hope of the resurrection in our hearts, and that any day that Christ calls us home, whether we see it, whether it is a long way of coming, or whether it takes us like a thief in the night, we are resurrection people who belong to Jesus in body and in soul, in life and in death. When the angel said, do not be afraid, there was a whole new dimension of fearlessness that was opened up by Jesus rising from the grave. If you think back to the Old Testament of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or if you're more familiar with the VeggieTales version, Rack, Shack, and Benny, as you keep those three characters in mind, they had a certain fearlessness that they drew from their faith as well, didn't they? That when they were faced with the choice of either bow down to a false god or be thrown into the fire, they're like, you know what, you got nothing on us. Because either our holy, righteous, and almighty God will intervene and save us, and you will look the fool because of it. Either God will save us by some intervention, or even if you throw us into the fire and we die, we still belong to our God. So you have no power over us. There is no threat that you could put on us that will give us fear. There is a fearlessness of knowing that they belonged to God. And friends, how much more do we know that we have a fearlessness because we belong to Christ, that he bought us with his blood upon the cross, that we belong to him. And there is a hope that comes from this and a fearlessness that emerges from it. That we are not afraid because we know that Anything that could separate us from God, any sin that we could have, has already been atoned for, not just on one day of the year, but since that first resurrection for every day, for every day of our lives, for every day of human history, now until Christ shall return. Do not be afraid, for you belong to Jesus in life and in death, in body and in spirit. And as we think about the things that we can overcome, as we marvel that God has given us gift of mind and intellect, that we celebrate all that we can overcome. Even as we do so, even as we think about all that we can overcome, we know that death still has a certain 
power. And whether you're a regular part of North Holland or whether there's a different worshiping community that you're a part of, if we live life long enough, we experience the pain of death, the grief of it. And we're not told in Scripture to avoid or ignore that pain or bypass it somehow, but rather, 1 Thessalonians tells us we do grieve, but we grieve not as those without hope. We grieve in resurrection hope. Even in this last year at North Holland, in the nine-ish, nine-ish years, eight and a half years I've been pastor here, we've had a lot of deaths. And there is a loss. And sometimes we feel just a bit cheated by death. And we can't conquer death on our own. And yet we grieve as those with hope. And so even as we experience death and loss, we remember then that this is what it's all about. That in life and in death we belong to Christ. And that we grieve, we feel loss, and we celebrate that we belong to our Lord. And that we pray the same, that we fulfill the great commission that our loved ones also belong to Jesus. This we celebrate, and this is how we grieve. That even death, grieving someone's death is kind of like a jawbreaker. It takes a long time to process it through. And if you try to, like, crunch through it, you'll do more damage to yourself, and you'll still have the same amount of jawbreaker in your mouth. But we, we follow the one who conquered the grave into all circumstances of life and in death, that Christ's resurrection is the centering event for our lives, that we see the world around us through his resurrection. And so, as we see all of the victories that we have, we remember that they belong to Jesus, that he invented and perfected victory over all obstacles, even death itself, and that even as we grieve death and process it, we do so knowing that we belong to Christ and that our grieving process, too, is its own victory that belongs to Jesus. We find much hope in Jesus' appearance, in the angels appearing to the women at the tomb. But it shouldn't be lost on us either that as we cling to this hope, as we find ourselves founded in it and, and rooted in it and grounded in our resurrection hope, that there will always be a countermission to the great commission of the church. The great commission is go and make disciples of all nations, but the countermission we get in Matthew 28 with the soldiers who go to the chief priests and the elders. And we have to kind of wonder, well, why is that? First of all, why would they go, why would the soldiers go to the chief priests? Why would they have any interest in going to them? Shouldn't they go to their, shouldn't they go to their superiors? But let's think this through. The obvious answer starts with, if you were a soldier in charge of making sure that a dead body stayed in a grave, like literally, you had one job, and you failed at that, are you going to go to your higher-ups and be like, hey, um, the dead body, right, the one that was in the grave, we saw him crucified, he died, yeah, we lost it. You're not going to want to tell anybody that. They go to the chief priests first. Now, Different reasons for that. One, just sheer avoidance. Not wanting to go tell your higher-ups that you had one seemingly pretty simple mission and you failed at it. But also that they go to the chief priests because the things that they witnessed and saw were pretty incredible and didn't make sense to them. And here we have Jesus, who was fully dead, becomes fully alive, 
and the soldiers who were alive become like dead men because of the terror that they saw. Because there is an earthquake and the angel looks like it's dressed in lightning. That's like end times language from earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, and they are freaked out. And so some scholars do think that part of the reason that the soldiers went to the chief priests is because they're like, we need you to help us understand what happened because we can't make sense of it. But the chief priests, the elders, they don't want to make sense of this. They want to bury it down. And so they give them a large sum of money, and they're like, hey, tell you what, we'll pay you off good, and all you have to do is say that you fell asleep. It doesn't exactly sound like a good thing for a soldier to say, hey, I was on guard duty and I fell asleep. Mm, some of our actual veterans are like, yeah, no, no, not your first thing that you want to say, huh? And uh, just tell them that while you were asleep, uh, Jesus' followers came and stole his body out of the tomb, and they ran away with it. Okay. John Calvin, uh, a, ref, a theologian of the Reformation 500 years ago, asked the same obvious question that we might be asking today. If they fell asleep, how would they say that they know what happened? Oh, while I was asleep, uh, his followers came. How do you know that's what happened? You were asleep. The soldiers would not want to admit that anything happened, but they're being paid off pretty well to say actually they like committed a stupid blunder and fell asleep. Why? Well, in part, money does talk. Money will do its best to even hide truth and settle it down a little bit. But why would, this want, why would they want this to happen in the first place? Why would the soldiers want to go along with this, knowing that they wouldn't be executed for this unless the event caused an insurrection? Then they would have been executed. But probably for falling asleep on the job, for letting their one thing that they were supposed to do happen, and it did, for having that happen, they would probably be flogged and maybe demoted. Now, granted, they're probably soldiers, but um, put simply, they'd probably be exchanging their spears for toilet plungers for a while. They'd be given a different job to do for a while you can't even guard a tomb. And it's not that they expected the resurrection, but they're making sure that nobody does anything with the body. And just as we saw over Holy Week, I mean, Jesus' followers scattered pretty quickly. A few guards with spears, swords, and shields should be enough to keep everybody away, much less the big stone. But the chief priests and the soldiers, they join in this kind of co-conspiracy, saying, you know what? Jesus didn't rise from the grave. Everything's okay. We didn't see any angels or anything like that. His followers just took his body away. Why would this be compelling? Why is this the first counter mission that the enemy launches against the mission of the church, the great commission of Jesus to share the hope of the resurrection? Well, the chief priests know that they know what they're capable of. The soldiers of Rome know what they're capable of. And if Jesus has done something that no one else in the world is capable of doing, then the attention of the world will not go to the chief priests. It will not go to Rome. The attention of the world will go to Jesus. And our eyes and our attention will turn towards him. And so for the chief priests to say, hey, no, 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 we've got the law. We can lead you to salvation. We know how to live your life. But we're like, wait a second. No, I want that type of life that Jesus showed, the type of life that conquers death itself. I want that life they'd have no need for the chief priests and elders anymore. They've got the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. 
And in Rome, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was the highest good that was ever proclaimed. And the only conquest that you had to be interested in if you were a Roman citizen was knowing that if Rome sets its eye upon it, the military might, the greatest army in the Western world at that time, the only conquest you need to know is that Rome conquers what Rome wants to conquer. That's the conquest that matters. And here we have Jesus conquering the grave, conquering death itself, coming from death to life. And if that conquest is true, then all of the conquests of Rome don't matter because Jesus did something that the strongest economy in the world, the strongest military in human history at that point, that none of them could accomplish, that Jesus has done something that all of our money and might and intellect and will, though they are great, cannot even touch what Jesus has done for us. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And so, friends, as we center ourselves on resurrection hope, as we remember that all that separates us from God died on the cross, and all of the victories that we could possibly hope for and imagine happened on that Easter morning when the grave was empty because Jesus is no longer there. He is risen. At that moment, our eyes ought to turn to Jesus every single day, that our lives, our victories, our struggles, all of it is seen through the lens of the empty grave and Christ's resurrection. And this is our good news that it was a once done by Jesus, but is ever repeated through us. And this is the one verse from John 12 that I want to share today. As we've been going through parables during Lent, some final parable language for us today on Easter is John 12, 24, where Jesus said about his own death, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus' death was the one seed from which many would continue to sprout and blossom and plant more and more and more. And we gathered here today and churches throughout the world are evidence that the harvest continues to be great and that we followed through on the things that Jesus told us to do. In Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. This is our good news. And we are just one seed among many, many, many throughout history that we continue to celebrate Christ's resurrection hope. Jesus told us to go and make disciples, to share our resurrection hope, to see the world with this great victory as our primary lens. And he also told us that as we come to this table, to do so in remembrance of him, that Jesus was given to us this meal and that we celebrate it even today in remembrance, communion, and hope.